Are you a corporation? Don't laugh if you own stock, you basically are. And if you've suffered some corporate trauma, you might be able to sue. Today on the podcast, we talk about why there's never been a better time for investors to sue their company and what that means for everyone. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz, and I'm joined today by Jennifer Kay, who covers the great state of Delaware. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to be talking about corporate trauma, and that's a pretty loaded phrase that we're going to be coming back to a lot in this episode. But essentially, it's when something goes so horribly wrong at a corporation that it rises above just an honest mistake and approaches something resembling gross negligence. And we can give an example here. The first one that comes to mind is Boeing, because it was a pretty big one. A Lion Air Boeing 737 crashed into the sea this morning. Rescuers have located debris, but they do not expect to find any survivors. In the late 2010s, problems started emerging with Boeing 737 MAX planes, and then two of them crashed within six months of each other. An Ethiopian Airlines flight has crashed shortly after takeoff from Addis Ababa, It was later revealed that the company may have exerted inappropriate pressure on its safety inspectors to issue clean bills of health. The most significant consequences of this, of course, was that these crashes killed a combined 346 people. But, of course, less significantly, they also cost Boeing an enormous amount of money, $2.5 billion back in 2021 for just one settlement with the Department of Justice. And that's where we get to claims of corporate trauma. That's not a trauma inflicted on other people by a corporation, although there were plenty of people affected in this Boeing situation. But it's a trauma inflicted on a corporation by its own leadership. Yeah, and this is where we have to dig into some weird philosophical questions about what a corporation even is. So at the risk of sounding like Mitt Romney, corporations are, at the end of the day, people. Corporations are people, my friend. I'm not sure this is what then-presidential candidate Romney meant, but corporation is really just a fancy word for a group of people who own a particular business. Every corporation has shareholders who own the company, and if you drill down to it, you'll find that all of those shareholders are people. And that makes sense, right? Like, animals don't own stocks. Robots don't own stocks, at least not yet. It's all people. And some of those people are harmed deeply financially when the company they own messes up really, really badly. Like so badly that planes fall out of the sky and the company has to pay more than $2.5 billion as a result. That's a corporate trauma. It financially traumatizes the shareholders of the corporation. And because we live in America, when someone financially traumatizes you, you can sue them. Okay, so this is the part of the podcast where I explain why we have you on, Jennifer. Yes. Jennifer, as I've mentioned, covers Delaware. And listener, when you think about Delaware, what do you think about? For me, it's a joke from the classic movie Wayne's World about how actually when you do think about Delaware, or if you think about Delaware, nothing really comes to mind. In this scene, Wayne and Garth are demonstrating their public access show's new high-tech blue screen. Okay, we've got a new feature on Wayne's World this week, which allows us to travel through time and space. It's called Chroma Key, and it's really handy if you want to go to... New York. Hey, we're in New York. I say you want to go to Texas. Howdy, partners. Let's raise and rope broncos. Or imagine being able to be magically whisked away to Delaware. Hi, I'm in Delaware. 
ooh, that's uh, that hurts. But hey, it's got some really nice tax-free shopping. That is very true. And Delaware also has a lot of corporations. In fact, Delaware is the corporation capital of the world. Well over half of the Fortune 500 are legally, at least, headquartered in Delaware. And the reasons why are complicated. But a big one is the state's unique judicial system. There's a whole court known for overseeing corporate disputes, and that's called the Court of Chancery. The judges on that court aren't actually called judges. They are a chancellor and six vice chancellors. Why they're called that, we're not going to get into. But what is interesting is that corporations and shareholders really like having their legal matters heard in this particular court. That's because Chancery Court is known for understanding what's going on with both parties, both the shareholders and the boards. It's really efficient. They take care of cases, or they try to, very quickly. And it offers corporations stability because pretty much most of the major corporations go to court in Delaware and they all get the same rules. Now, typically judges aren't really accessible to the media, but Jennifer, you managed to get a sit down with one of the judges on this court, or pardon me, vice chancellors. His name is Travis Laster, and he's been handling a lot of cases recently where shareholders are suing the directors and in some cases the CEOs of their own companies. These types of cases are called Caremark claims. As I think of it, the basic role of Caremark is to recognize that the corporation as an entity has suffered harm, or as you know, I often refer to it as a corporate trauma, because we don't want to get involved as much in sort of the day-to-day things. But when something massive happens to a corporation, you get a lot of lawsuits, you get a lot of fallout, and the corporation has suffered harm. Okay, so let's explain why they're called Caremark Claims. Yeah, so the very first time this claim was brought was against a company called, of course, Caremark, which is now a part of CVS Pharmacy. In the mid-90s, Caremark had to pay huge penalties after its employees got caught giving kickbacks to its clientele. The shareholders of the company then sued the board of directors, saying they allowed this illegal activity to flourish at Caremark, which then inevitably caused it to take this huge financial hit. And in 1996, they won. So when you think about it, what the shareholders essentially are doing is saying, hey, we didn't cause these problems that led to this massive settlement. The directors did. Therefore, they should have to pay. And here's Vice Chancellor Laster putting it in a different way. If you are particularly an investor in that corporation, what you see is your corporation has suffered harm and somebody caused that to happen. And so the the logical question is, well, why should the corporation bear that loss when there's actually a human doer that caused the harm? Laster says Caremark claims can have a broader societal benefit because corporate directors now know that they can be held personally liable and the company's insurers will have to cut a huge check if they act in bad faith. And one can see that serving some very significant social roles in terms of uh, deterrence, uh, in terms of you know forcing individuals to internalize the cost of wrongdoing, all these types of things. We want people to obey the law. <laughs> and to conform to the law. And so part of having Caremark claims and the availability of Caremark claims is so that people are thinking that they could face this type of accountability mechanism and hopefully internalizing that. But here's the thing. Since the original Caremark claim back in 1996, these types of claims have become notorious for being nearly impossible to win. 
And not just that, but most of them get thrown out pretty early in the process at the motion to dismiss stage. Yeah. And that gets at how difficult it is to win a case like this. Because if you're a shareholder, you not only have to prove that your directors messed up, you have to prove that they knew or should have known they messed up, that they dismissed blatant red flags, or that they intentionally buried their heads in the sand so they wouldn't see any red flags. John Gentile, a Delaware-based corporate attorney with the firm Benish, Friedlander, Coplin, and Arnoff, LLP, says Caremark claims aren't meant for normal run-of-the-mill mistakes. Delaware still has a very strong deference to the business judgment rule. And, you know, that basically means as long as boards are, are operating in good faith and they're making decisions based on the information that they have at the time, you can't look back in time and, and kind of Monday morning quarterback it. That being said... Things have changed in recent years, and the numbers bear that out. From 2019 through 2021, almost a third of the Caremark claims filed in Delaware survived a motion to dismiss, according to research from the firm Skadden Arps, Slate, Marr, and Flom, LLP. Here's Gentile again. If we look back in the last 20 years, there after the original Caremark claim case, there was a long stretch of time where no shareholders got past the motion to dismiss stage. And then suddenly that changed a few years ago, and there's been several cases where shareholders have successfully defeated a motion to dismiss. A big reason for that is the man we just heard from a few moments ago, Vice Chancellor Travis Laster. He has a reputation as a judge who holds directors to a pretty high standard, and he demonstrated that with a ruling earlier this year in a case against the board of directors of Walmart. The company paid more than $3 billion to settle claims its pharmacies were overprescribing opioids, and a group of shareholders sued the directors in Laster's court, saying, basically, you did nothing while this was going on. It cost the company billions of dollars. Now you need to pay us. The Walmart directors produced some of their minutes and other board books to show that they had taken some action, that they weren't totally asleep at the wheel. But in a first, Vice Chancellor Laster ruled that these board books weren't enough to prove good faith. Gregory Del Geizo is an attorney with the firm Robbins LLP, and he's represented shareholders in Caremark claims. He says this ruling shows that directors aren't getting the benefit of the doubt anymore. Over time, what I've seen is less and less detailed board books where they can point to on a motion to dismiss. Here's some general topic that maybe kind of covers this area. Uh, in recent years, what I found is heavily, heavily redacted documents, heavily redacted minutes, a claim that a lawyer is always there reviewing things, so everything's privileged. And to try to protect against stockholders making any arguments about board's knowledge. And I guess I would say what Walmart does is, is the first big case I've seen that pushes back on that and says, look, at the motion to dismiss stage, I'm going to have to draw the inference in front in, for the plaintiff. However, this definitely isn't to say that now we're going to see a bunch of Caremark trials. When these claims do survive a motion to dismiss, it's almost guaranteed that the two parties will settle, according to Edward Timlin, a partner at the firm Bernstein, Litowitz, Berger, and Grossman LLP, who works on corporate governance issues. I think a lot of them that get over the motion to dismiss do settle, you know, frequently because the ones that survive motions to dismiss often have some pretty eye-popping eye corporate traumas associated with them. So there often is, I think, an appetite um, by defendants to get them settled. Timlin represents plaintiffs in these cases. 
shareholders, in other words. But he's actually worried that some shareholders are taking Caremark too far against boards of directors or fiduciaries, as they're known in Delaware speak. Timlin says these types of claims should be reserved for the worst of the worst corporate malfeasance because anything short of that is bound to fail and waste Chancery Court's time. For example, he said, Marriott shareholders sued its board of directors after the hotel chain announced in 2018 that it had suffered a cyber attack exposing an enormous amount of its customers' data. Timlin says that's just fundamentally not the same as the Walmart opioid scandal. You know, when you buy a share of Walmart, for example, you're not buying a share with the expectation that your fiduciaries will allow Walmart to make a profit by allowing the pharmacy business to sell opioids into gray, you know, divert opioids into gray markets for profit. On the other end of the spectrum is a case like the Marriott data breach case, where when you buy a share of Marriott, are you accepting the risk that external bad actors out there, hackers, might attack the company? And the question that we're always asking is, Where's the, where's the corporate trauma coming from? Is it coming from something that the fiduciaries did or should have done? Or is it coming from an act of God or a competitor or a, a Russian hacker or, or any sort of other uh, external person? And that claim against Marriott did not survive a motion to dismiss, by the way. There are also people who question the premise of what Vice Chancellor Laster said earlier, that Caremark can provide a broader societal benefit. Because remember, in the Caremark claim against Walmart, for example, the families of people who died from opioid addiction were not involved at all. This was a lawsuit where the plaintiffs were big Wall Street institutional investors who were trying to recover funds for themselves. Here's Paul Weitzel, a professor at the University of Nebraska who specializes in corporate law. Yeah, there's very little about shareholder litigation that's altruistic. And... Uh, and there's debate in the academy about this on whether shareholder litigation is actually beneficial to shareholders or whether people just see the stock price drop and then they look for some reason to sue. And so you can find claims in pretty good arguments either way. But yeah, they're not, they're not doing it because they're concerned about rural America. Regardless of whether Caremark claims really are good for society or whether they're being overused, expect to see a lot more of them in the near future, especially now that Vice Chancellor Laster has signaled that he's not inclined to dismiss them out of hand. The Fox Corporation's directors have already been hit with the Caremark claim after their nearly $800 million defamation settlement with Dominion Voting Systems. So if you're listening to this and you're a director at a corporation, you might be freaking out right now. If there's a big scandal at my company, will I get hit in my own pocketbook? According to Howard Suskin, a corporate law attorney with the firm Jenner and Block LLP, it's actually not that hard to avoid a Caremark claim. First, make sure you're at least trying to do your duty to exercise oversight over your company. And second, make sure that when you're doing this oversight, you document it. You know, the one, you know, kind of sea change almost that I'm seeing occurring, and it's in, in large part because of the recommendations that lawyers like me are making to the boards, is make sure that your board minutes are robust. I think historically, there's been a practice at um, boards of, you know, having minutes that say something like, you know, this topic was discussed, discussion ensued, and that's it. Of course, this only protects directors from future claims. If you've had shoddy record keeping in the past, Suskin says there's not much you can do about it now. Well, I think the boards need to be very mindful about them. But the you know reality is, by the time the case is filed, it's in some respects too late to do anything um, about it. You have to live with the record that existed, uh, you know, prior to that point. 
All right. I think that covers just about everything, right, Jennifer? I think that's it. Thanks for having me on the podcast. And I should say, sorry about the Wayne's World clip. You know, Delaware doesn't really deserve that. I, I'm fine with it. I, I think it's it's America's best kept secret, maybe? One of the best kept secrets. Let's call it that. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by Jennifer Kay and myself, David Schultz, with help from Mike Leonard. Greg Henderson edited this episode, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I felt like I was in jail every day. When I was going to work, I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.